Our Gospel reading this evening comes from John chapter 17. Hear the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you love me before the creation of the world. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Do sit down. Just pray together. Lord, this is our prayer that we might see the Lord Jesus, that we might see something of his glory through this passage of Scripture. And as your Spirit comes and writes it upon our hearts, for we ask it in his name. Amen. The passage I've chosen to speak on this evening was not one of the nominated passages for this evening, but I asked Paul if he wouldn't mind if I chose this particular passage because there's a phrase from this passage in, in Romans chapter 5 that has been on my mind since our time away at Lee Abbey together as a church. And that phrase is found in Romans 2, sorry, Romans 5 and verse 2, where Paul writes, we boast or we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And it's this phrase, the hope of the glory of God, that I wanted to focus on this evening and for us to think about. This was Paul's boast, his hope of the glory of God. And not only his personal boast, but it was the boast of those who had come to know Christ through him. We boast in the glory of God, he says, in the hope of the glory of God. And this should be our boast this evening. We should boast in the hope of the glory of God. But what does this phrase mean? What is this hope that should be ours? Paul is arguing that we have a wonderful hope as Christians, trusting in the Lord Jesus. If I can refer back to the sermon this morning from Paul, uh, we were looking 
at the way in which we are clay pots, like clay pots, very ordinary people. But we have a treasure in this ordinariness of our lives. And if I can put it this way, part of that treasure which is ours, though we're very ordinary people, is we have the hope of the glory of God. And by this phrase, I believe Paul means firstly that the Christian possesses a hope that we will one day see God in all his glory, that we will be brought to stand before the living God and see him in the glory of all his being, something which defies our imagination. Do you remember in the Old Testament that uh, Moses in Exodus 33 asked God if God would show him his glory. That's what he wanted. He wanted to see the glory of God. This God who'd come down on Mount Sinai and made the mountain shake. I want to see your glory, says Moses. What a bold request. And God says to him, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. There's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. Moses could not see God face to face in all God's glory. But he saw something, as it were, of the back of God, the departing glory of God. And even that made such an impression upon Moses that his face shone when he came down the mountain. Now we have a hope that is better than that of Moses, or better than the request of Moses. We have a hope of seeing God in all his glory. It's an extraordinary hope, a fearful hope. But I believe there's more here to this phrase Paul uses when he speaks of the hope of the glory of God. The Christian not only has a hope of seeing God's glory, but we have a hope of sharing in God's glory. That takes our breath away, doesn't it? But Paul speaks further on this. In Romans chapter 8, he says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share with his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul is saying that the Lord Jesus has ascended into glory. He has received again the glory that was his before the world began. And we are co-heirs with him by God's grace. We are co-heirs with him so that all that he now possesses in glory, he is going to share with us. 
and we too will share in the glory of God. Again, I can't really imagine what that means. But Paul underlines it. He speaks about the glory that will be revealed in us. Not just the glory that will be revealed to us. That would be wonderful enough. But the glory that will be revealed in us. We will share in that glory. And if I can put it like this, it will shine from us as it shines from Christ. These promises defy our imagination. And yet I believe there's one more thing to this hope of the glory of God. One more aspect of it. And that again is expressed by Paul in Romans chapter 8. He says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And then he goes on to say, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We have a hope not only of seeing God's glory, not only of sharing in God's glory, but that all creation will share in that glory. Creation groans in longing for that day when the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. What a tremendous hope this is, the hope of the glory of God. It should be our hope this evening, something that grips our hearts and thrills us. What is the ground of this hope? How can we be certain of this hope? Our hopes, our human hopes, are often disappointed, aren't they? I came across this quotation this week. It's from a lady called Nora Ephron, who you may know or you may not know. But Nora Ephron wrote this. The honest truth is that it's sad to be over 60. I know there are some here who have not yet got to that grand age. She says, the long shadows are everywhere. Friends dying and battling illness. A miasma of melancholy hangs there, forcing you to deal with the fact that your life, however happy and successful, has been full of disappointments and mistakes. Little ones and big ones. There are dreams that are never quite going to come true. Ambitions that will never quite be realised. Well, speaking as one who is over 60, by quite a step, um, that's true, that's true. There are many things that I hoped, ambitions I had, which I know will now never be realised. There are disappointments in life. All our hopes are not fulfilled. But here is a hope that is sure and certain. It cannot disappoint. 
It cannot fail. And why is that? Because it's grounded in Christ's saving work. Paul writes of the Lord Jesus, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised for our justification. Jesus, and we're going to be remembering that as we meet around this table in a little while. He was delivered over to death for our sins. He died for us. He paid the penalty for our sin so that we might be forgiven, so that all our sin might be washed away, the burden of our sin and guilt taken from us, and we might know that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The price for our sin is paid. It's paid in full. And he was raised for our justification. His resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, was the Father's stamp of approval on his Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The one who has done all that was asked of him. It's the Father's stamp of approval on the Son. It's the Father's justification of the Son that he has done all that was required for our redemption. But it's also for our justification. For he has raised from the dead and ascended into heaven for us. And he's there interceding for us. And so his approval by the Father is ours also. We are beloved children because he, the beloved Son, is there in glory for us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Look how Paul develops this theme later on in verses 6 to 10 that were read to us earlier. He says that Jesus died for us when we were powerless, when we were ungodly, when we were sinners, when we were enemies of God. It's not a very complimentary picture, is it? Jesus died for us when we were helpless and hopeless. He died to reconcile us to God. Well, now that we have been reconciled to God, now that we've been made children of the living God, loved and embraced by the Father, how much more, says Paul, twice in these verses, how much more shall we be brought safe to glory through him? Since we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? It's not a maybe, it's a certainty. If God sent his son into the world to die upon that cross, when we were alienated from him, far away from him, now that we've been brought near and the son is raised up into glory and is interceding with the father on our behalf, it is inconceivable that he will not bring us safe to glory. No one can pluck us from his hand. He loved us when we were lost in sin. He loves us still 
and his love will bring us to glory. We are justified by faith. Our faith is a weak thing. It's like the trembling hand that holds itself out for mercy. It's like the prayer of the tax collector in the temple who dare not look to God but simply says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says of him that that man went home justified with God. It's not about the strength of our faith, it's about the power of the saving work of Christ, which brings us to glory. And as if that isn't enough, you say, well, I'm still beset by doubts and fears. As if that's not enough, look at this. Hope, says Paul in verse 5, does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. The Holy Spirit witnesses in our hearts that God the Father loves us, that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit gives us that assurance that we belong to him, and that despite our weakness and failings, we will be brought safe to glory. We have a hope of the glory of God, and we have the Spirit's assurance that it is ours. The Spirit's work in the heart is like a personal love letter signed by God addressed to you personally by which you are assured that God loves you and will never let you go. I heard this week the report of the sad death of a student at Bath Spa University, you may have heard it, of uh, meningitis. And uh, one of his tutors, I believe it was, who said, sadly, speaking of this young lad's death, he had a bright future before him. Well, I want you to know tonight that even when it comes to the day of our death, it will not be that we had a bright future before us it will be that we have a bright future before us, for we have the hope of the glory of God. And this hope has practical consequences. Paul speaks about the way in which it enables him to rejoice in the midst of suffering, and for suffering to produce perseverance, and perseverance character. Now, I don't know how you view suffering. Suffering doesn't automatically produce perseverance and character. It can produce resentment, complaint, and all manner of ungodly characteristics. But when suffering is faced with an eye on the hope of the glory of God, 
it produces an endurance because we press on towards the hope set before us. And it produces a character, an extraordinary character. Now some of you, many of you will know of extraordinary characters of Christian men and women who have faced years of suffering and debilitating illness and yet have faced it with joy and with expressions of confidence in the living God who is their hope. What enables them to do that? The hope of the glory of God set before them knowing that even as everything else is taken away and death itself approaches, they have a hope which nothing can destroy. Paul speaks also of boasting in this hope. He speaks of boasting of the hope he has in the glory of God. We need to boast of this hope. It should be the witness of our lives and of our words. It should speak to others around us. Our character should be formed by this hope. And our witness should spring from it. To boast of something is to be glad to tell others of it. Is that us this evening? Are we glad to tell others of the hope we have in Christ? We live in a world which knows a lot of despair and darkness and where a lot of people can't see beyond the immediate and who are worried and frustrated and troubled about the coming election and about the outcome for Brexit and all manner of things like that. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned about those things. We should. But beyond those things, we have a hope of the glory of God which doesn't depend on circumstances or what tomorrow may bring. And that should be our witness to a troubled world and a world which needs to know of the Lord, Lord Jesus. Make this hope your boast and your testimony so that others may be drawn to faith in Christ and come to possess this same hope for themselves. For Christ's sake. Amen.